And guys, it's been a while. Welcome back to the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Sorelli. Uh, I am just back from the 777 Expedition, uh, which we completed about a week ago. So I've been catching up on sleep. And I'm proud to say that uh, my first podcast out of the gate is with Bernie Marcus. Now, if you don't know who Bernie Marcus is, you've been living under a rock. Uh, Bernie Marcus is a warrior uh, within his respective profession. He came, and we're going to talk about his life, came from very little and built one of the most recognizable brands, one of the most successful companies uh, in America. He's seen a lot. And so, uh, Bernie, I can't thank you enough for joining us. Uh, I think you have a lot of advice for us men in our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. So thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. And I want to thank you for putting me on a podcast. And uh, if this isn't a structural one, I think it'll be very helpful for the audience that you have. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, you've got a lot to give us. And uh, additionally, uh, for those that don't know, Bernie's been dedicated to helping veterans uh, post-war with PTSD, brain trauma, and he's dedicated a lot of his money, which we're going to get into that. You are a very giving person. But Bernie, uh, it's it's probably safe to say and not not, not to uh, take light of it, but you did not grow up with uh, with much. And at one point, uh, you sought out uh, the protection of joining a gang, I believe, at the age of 11. Give us your your your, your early beginnings, uh, because it is a far cry from where you're uh, you're ending up today. Well, my parents were Russian immigrants. Uh, they came from Russia, and uh, they spoke no English. How they got here is one of the great stories of courage. Uh, they did it honestly. Uh, they waited until they could apply, and they came in legally. And uh, we lived in a fourth-story uh, tenement in Newark, New Jersey, in a black and white community. It was a very tough area, and uh, we were terribly poor. My father was a, car a carpenter, a very good carpenter, but a, not a good businessman. He barely made a living. And, and he had, uh, besides myself, three other children, and uh, they were forced to go to work uh, to support the family. Uh, but we were we were happy. We didn't know. We thought everybody was like that, and the people around us were all like that. They're all put in in that tenement. They were all poor. Nobody had any any money, and. Uh, we all managed to survive. And, uh, you know, in my case, it, it, it was a case of, I just didn't want to ever be in a situation where my parents were, where in many nights, you know, we ate spaghetti or we ate beans and uh, there was, you know, no food on the table. Uh, but uh, I didn't know, I was a kid and, uh, but I never wanted to see that again. And I was determined it wouldn't happen to me, that I'd always make enough money to support my family and myself and have enough so that I could take care of my parents as well. So that was my desire. Uh, lived in a rough neighborhood. It was tough. Uh, I got the crap beat out of me every day. Uh, went to a, a school uh, with a black gang which very prominent, ended up in a fight every single day of my life. 
until the uh, leader of Van Gang finally said, I, I have no time with you anymore. You got to join the gang because you just, you wear me out. And it was true. I, every day I would fight him. He kicked the hell out of me. And I come back the next day for the same thing. So I joined the black gang for a while. And uh, a lot of things came out of it. It was very interesting. Uh, we actually, from that point, we beat up the white kids. What can I tell you? But there were no guns and there were no knives. You know, it was just fists and tough kids. And, uh, but boy, you learn life and you learn how to survive. And I learned how to survive in those years. You either made it or you didn't make it. And uh, it taught me a lot of lessons in my life, in my business career and everything else that I did. Uh, I originally wanted to be a doctor and uh, I was very interested in medicine. As a kid, I knew more about the body than most people. I studied the anatomy and I, I had made up my mind I was going to be a doctor. And of course, being Jewish, you either want to be, your parents say you either be a lawyer or you're going to be a doctor. And so I chose being a doctor. And uh, I actually went for two years of pre-med at Rutgers. And uh, unfortunately, I applied for medical school, had all the all the background for it and had the marks were pretty good. And uh, when they asked me for a $10,000 contribution at, at uh, Harvard, you know, I just looked at them like they were crazy. My entire family, my aunts, uncles, cousins, if we put us all together and shook us upside down, we couldn't raise $10,000. So my dream of ever being a doctor was gone. And the reason I couldn't get into medical school was that they had a 10% quota on Jews. Now, every single medical school at that time had a 10% quota on Jews. So if you didn't have money, you were not going to get into a medical school. Uh, you just had to buy your way in. And, you know, unfortunately, we see a lot of this surfacing today as well. It's, they say history repeats itself, and I think history does repeat itself. So uh, I quit school. I went out on a road. I hitchhiked down to Florida, and I lived in Florida for almost a year and just did nothing with my life until my mother convinced me that I had to have an education and she gave me an ultimatum and come back or else. And my mother, when she said or else, it meant something. So I came back and I applied to dental school and pharmacy school. And, you know, whatever school was out there that was close to medicine. And I got a, accepted to dental school and pharmacy school. And I chose pharmacy because I could live at home and not have the overhead expense. And that's how I became a pharmacist. So I, Mike, I was into drugs long time ago. <laughs> In the professional sense. So I've got to step back. Uh, 
you know, to say a, a turd in a punch bowl. So here's a white scrawny Jewish kid amongst a black gang. Uh, did, did you grow to like fighting? Did, did you like boxing? Uh, yeah, I, I fought in the ring once in a junior thing. I was a, a swimmer in high school, uh, but I didn't like, but I was tough. Um, I, I would say that boxing was not a something I was interested in, really. Uh, I, I did try it, uh, and I got knocked on my ass, and uh, I didn't like it. And I was a street fighter. You know, here you're fighting, you know, you have rules and regulations. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know about those things. I knew about, you know, a, tackling a guy, beating the crap out of him, and that was it. But um, so I, I, I chose not to do that. I did swimming while I was in high school, and I was pretty good, not, not great, but pretty good. But we were too poor, and uh, I, you know, my parents never came. By the way, at the high school, we were too poor. The whole high school was poor. All the schools in Newark were poor. We didn't have swimming trunks. We swam naked. So all of our... Uh, our, our meets were done with everybody naked in the room. There was nobody with a, a swimming suit on because we're all poor kids. All the kids that grew up in Newark were poor and all the schools were poor and they didn't have enough money for trunks. So uh, we did went to state and we went, we went to, uh, we were in a state contest and we got to the semifinals and then we were knocked out. But it was that was never never a thought of where I was going to go. I I always knew I was going to be a businessman. I I love to walk through good neighborhoods, and I would see these houses with porches, and a porch to me meant that you're really stable. And I would try to figure how did they get here? How did they get here? Somebody made it, and somebody you know, had their roots somewhere like my parents and they managed to get out of the gutter and, 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 and lift themselves up. And my desire was to have a house with a porch. That was it. I was started with small things and to make $25,000 a year. That was like the biggest dream I had. So I went from there and uh, worked my way up perspective is uh, is an amazing thing uh you know bernie i i grew up nowhere close to 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 poverty but i you know in a war zone i got to be honest it was simple living but it was it was some of the most enjoyable living i've ever had i had my twin bed i had my small little space um so i i understand i understand the need to to achieve more especially to put food on the the the, the table for your family you said you learned some things from being in a gang and living in poverty as a, as a, as a young man. I'm interested, and I know you're a critic of the narrative out there right now that people are entitled to things, um, especially if they're, they don't start on, let's say, an even starting block as other people. What did you learn in poverty and from the gangs that segued to, let's say, your, your success later on? 
Well, number one, there was no entitlement. None of us were able to be supported. If you didn't, if you didn't earn it, you didn't eat it. Uh, if you didn't make it, you, you just didn't make it. And, uh, there was no safety net. You know, these kids today, they are entitled. They think that everything is for nothing. Uh, they have food stamps. Nobody goes hungry. Uh, you know, kids like myself, uh, in those days, if you didn't have it, uh, there was no way to get it. But today, you have so many uh, places out there, and plus the fact you got people today that is cheaper for them, it's better for them to not work than work. And uh, we didn't know that. We, I, I worked my ass off from the time I was 11 years old. And I bought my own clothes. I bought my own shoes. Um, I had two older brothers. And until I was 11, I wore their shoes. Their, their, and their shoes never fit. And by the way, to this day, I have a problem with my feet because of, what, of those days. But, you know, if I didn't buy shoes for myself or clothes for myself, I, didn't, I wasn't going to have anything. So I learned early on. You better take care of yourself. Don't ask your parents for anything because they couldn't give it to you and you had to earn it yourself. So I swept floors, I cleaned toilets, I did deliveries, I did stocking in, in grocery stores and, and other kind of stores. And I, I, just, I just constantly worked. I didn't know what it was like to be that free time you know, between school and between, you know, playing around at night, I had to fill it with something. I was a soda jerker. There was there was nothing I didn't do. I, I did pins at bowling alleys. I I can't think I can't think of today of a job that I didn't do. You hustled. You hustled. I hustled. I hustled and I, and I was successful at it. And I was good at whatever I did. People wanted me because I was a hard worker. I never shirked. I never, you know, I showed up. I was dependable. And uh, I knew that, you know, this is my mother taught me, you know, you do that everything you do, you do it at the best way you can. And so I did everything at the best way I could. And I worked hard. And I never looked for a freebie. I never looked for somebody to bail me out. And uh, I didn't think about the fact that I was putting in the hours that I put in. Imagine me going to school and being a soda jerker and then, you know, ending up at the bowling alleys at night. And, uh, but I had time for fun. I will tell you, I enjoyed my, those years, my adolescent years. They were fun. They were really fun. And in high school, I went to public school. I actually cried when I graduated. It was the best experience I ever had in my life. Teachers were phenomenal. And I learned a lot going to school in Newark. Uh, it was called Southside High School. Mm -hmm. It's now called Shabazz High School. And it, it was a, a great place, but it was full of, action every day. There was always some kind of action. 
And uh, I was the class comedian, and I was the, 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 the president in my last year. And uh, I loved high school. I really did. But high school in those days, they taught you how to read, how to write, how to do math. Uh, today, it's all uh, diversity. That, that's all they teach you is diversity, you know, which is, uh, doesn't help you as a human being. Uh, it doesn't help you earn a living. It doesn't help you take care of your family. It's all such bullshit. <laughs> at least, at least you said it at the risk of, and, and you know what, somebody would say at the risk of making this a political discussion. It's not, we're talking about hard work. Hard work has nothing to do with politics, but it seems like there's a narrative now that wants to make everything uh, political. Um, I'm sure you get criticism being a billionaire, a self-made billionaire, first off, and, and let's substantiate that, for being out of touch when you, when you make such comments. Do, do you get criticism? And, and how do you respond to critics who know nothing about your, your, your background and the fact that you came from pretty much the lowest levels of poverty? Well, you know, whenever they, uh, they do an article on me, it's always Bernie Marcus, the billionaire. It's not Bernie Marcus, the guy who built aquariums, the guy who built hospitals, the guy who really invented taking care of autistic kids. Uh, they never, they never say that. It's always Bernie Marcus, you know, and you got that title, the billionaire. And, uh, they throw all billionaires into the same pot. And it's always the pot as though you didn't earn it. You did it on other people's backs. And uh, of course, I don't feel that way. I think that Home Depot, you know, I, I started Home Depot when I was 49 years old and we were broke, undercapitalized, had very little money, had great partners, Arthur Blank, uh, Pat and Pat Farah and, and Ken Langone. And we were able to build this into one of the America's great companies. Uh, and we only did it by living the life that we live. We're all poor kids. We're all guys who didn't come with silver spoons in our mouths. And we knew we had to work our backs off. And we did, we worked 80 hour weeks and we happened to go through a lot of misfortune that a lot of people maybe wouldn't have survived. We almost went broke several times ran out of money constantly. And uh, I could tell you those years were tough years. They were formative years. Uh, becoming a billionaire, you know, is not like inventing a, uh, you know, uh, an app. You know, and all of a sudden overnight, you're a dumb, stupid 25 year old kid and you're a multi-billionaire like that jerk uh, from the uh, FSX. The, uh, <laughs> the FTX, yeah, Sam. Uh, you know, real, but real putts who all of a sudden became a multi-zillionaire, uh, didn't know anything about life. You know, was a moron to start with, and uh, didn't have, didn't go through these formative years. The formative years are where you develop and become the person that you are. Uh, it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, it happens through trial and error, failure and success, uh, good times and bad times, all become part of your character and are really why 
you end up who you are. So I don't consider those bad years. I consider them all very good years for me. And uh, that now, you know, I'm able to do the things I want to do. At the age of 93, when, you know, they call me something, I don't, doesn't make any difference to me. They can't hurt me. They can't hurt me. They can't take anything away from me. Uh, and I do get a lot of comments. I say my mind. I'm not ashamed of who I am. And I believe I have strong beliefs about a lot of things. And I am certainly not woke. Whoa, am I not woke? So I, I love it. You know, first off, I don't get invited to the parties where people have a B uh, next to their name. So I, I've got to ask you, you know, quite a few billionaires. If you had to put a percentage on it, uh, how many of them started in similar backgrounds or, or close to you uh, and really had to fight uh, through life to, to grow their companies and become billionaires? Is it, is it a pretty high percentage? Yeah, I think in my day, yeah, it was very high. Uh, in my day, almost all the guys I knew started out the way I did. Um, they were all, you know, somebody that never had anything, worked themselves up to something. Today, they, you know, they go to Harvard, Yale, they're entitled, they come out, they went in stupid, they come out stupid. You know, and they, they learn from these professors, you know, uh, the pitfalls of uh, capitalism. And these professors who are have their jobs because stupid people keep give, giving money to universities and they keep trashing the very thing that keeps them in their jobs. And they teach these, these young people at Harvard and Yale and all these Ivy League schools to hate capitalism. And of course, if it wasn't for capitalism, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have the position I am. If it wasn't for being able to raise money in a capital market, Home Depot would never have been a success. You know, we opened four stores. We had an opportunity to open four more. We're totally undercapitalized. We had to go out to the market and sell stock. And that's how the success of Home Depot started. Every time we wanted to open more stores, we sold more stock. We got shareholders. We got our associates to own stock in the company. And the success of Home Depot is capitalism. And the success of almost every company out there that, that I know is successful started that way. But today, you know, they, they come in with their uh, their great uh, background and their background is, you know, you know, uh, HBO, a, uh, a thing from Harvard University and MBA and PhD and, you know, but they don't know their ass from a hole in the ground, frankly. They learn from professors who don't teach them that you have to really work hard uh, and believe in what you're doing and that you're really working for shareholders and, and, and you're working for your associates. But if you don't have a good company, if you don't make money, you can't supply money. It's it just, a, a, you know, to me, it doesn't make any sense. Market economics. 
Yeah. So, Bernie, let me ask you this, because I want to get to education, because I'm even, I'm even twisted on what to tell my 18-year-old daughter and my 14-year-old son about going to college. But, you know, before we get to that, your parents escaped communism. They escaped socialism, I'm sure, for a reason. They came to, to the United States because it was the land of opportunity, especially back in those days. Um, did they ever uh, impart their wisdom on you of how lucky you guys were even living in po poverty? not to live under the, 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 the blanket of socialism. I mean, did they educate you guys that uh, as your yeah, children, my, did they educate you when you were young? Yeah. My mother, my mother was one. Uh, she's my role model. She taught me everything. And uh, she taught me, be thankful for what you have. Uh, we didn't have much, but what we had was a love of a family and the family was very important. I have, a, a, you know, my brothers and sisters and my mother and father, we all loved each other and we never, we tried to help each other. And my mother along the way had rules, you know, work hard, do the very best you can. There's no limit on what you can become if you, if you follow your, your dreams. And in America, you can become anything you could become the president of the United States. My mother loved this country. When my mother and father got their citizenship, she turned to my father and she said, Joe, from this day forward, we only speak English in the house. Up until that time, we spoke Yiddish. And she said, we are now citizens. We will speak English from now on. My mother and my father said, no, no, no. He said, so my mother said, you don't eat. I'm not going to cook food for you. You're either going to eat, you're going to eat, speak English, or your life is not going to be worthwhile. And she believed that this was the golden land. And she believed that you could be anything you wanted to be. I would hope that all these people pouring across the border, that that's what they want to do, that they want to be citizens of this country and not citizens of where they came from and remain segregated. She wanted to be a citizen of this country and take advantage and, and know that she was safe. You know, they, they, were, they were tormented by the pogroms in Russia. You know, on, on, on Easter, Easter was the worst holiday of all because the Cossacks used to come through town and, you know, with their swords, just cut their heads off. You know, for no reason, just do it. And uh, Jews were struggling in, in Europe and anti-Semitism was really bad, especially in, Europe, in Russia and Poland. And uh, it, was, it was hard. And she never talked much about it, but she talked about the fact that when we made it, we had to give back. That was very important for us. It's called tzedakah. It's a Jewish word. And yeah. it means if you make it, you give back to the community. And even at the, at the as poor as we were, she had something called a pishka. And she would take away our ice cream money and she would put it in a pishka. And that pishka was for charities uh, to build Israel, trees in Israel or to help out orphans uh, or something like that. 
And she kind of instilled that in us, that you had to do it. It wasn't a question, do you want to do it? It's a question, you're obligated to do it. Being a Jew, this is what you do. You give back to society. And so I learned that early on, and I was very happy that I found a partner, Arthur Blank, who believed in the same thing. And so in, at Home Depot, we started to give back through Home Depot. And we did things for our customers that nobody else did. If there was a, you know, a tornado, our, our people would go out and cut the trees to get these people's driveways free. Uh, if there was a, uh, a hurricane, they jumped to it and, and put their own lives on the line to help our customers. And it became part and parcel of what the Home Depot does. So it became a humanity. And by the way, Home Depot hasn't stopped doing that. I left the company in 2020 and they're still doing it today. They're better than ever. And of course, we're very much involved with, uh, with our ex-military uh, and Home Depot is a tremendous backer of the military we always were. I remember during the Iraqi war early on that Arthur and I would do breakfasts and we'd have, you know, some of our people at one point we had, you know, 15, 20,000 people on on the on the, uh, out on the battle lines and we we paid them whatever they we qs their money whatever they made less by being in the military we gave them money and we helped them on the housing uh if their if their wife had a problem with plumbing we would send somebody out to help them and we just supported our military because we love this country. We think, listen, I think America is the greatest place in the world. I think there's no greater place. That's why people are pouring across the border because they know it's the greatest place. The only problem is our kids who are born here don't believe that it's the greatest place. I don't know where they think it's better, in China or in uh, Venezuela or in uh, Russia, uh, but we believed it. And I believe it today. I still love this country. And uh, when I sing the Star Spangled Banner, I still get tears in my eyes. And and I just feel like I have to do everything in my power to help us survive in this environment that we live in today, which is a bad environment. You know, in my, my opinion, it is perspective. And if you talk to anyone, uh, you, you get in a taxi cab, and I remember this, God, where was I? I was on the East Coast, got in a taxi cab. Guy was a Nigerian citizen. Uh, you know, very, very broken English, but so proud to be here compared to where he, he had come from. And I had been to Nigeria before. Uh, that is poverty on a, uh, on a different level. Or you talk to, uh, you know, a doctor. Uh, I know she was from the USSR uh, back in the day. She had actually created a uh, very interesting device a cosmetic device and you hear her talk about communism and how it put a a ceiling on people's ability their capacity to achieve in life that that stunted their drive I, I think a lot of people today just lack that perspective they're grown into a very comfortable setting known as the united states 
They don't understand that capitalism in free enterprise is the greatest strength this nation has. It's not our military. And I've always said that. It's our free enterprise and our capitalism that make our military so strong to affect change and good in the world. Um, education has definitely taken a turn. And again, we, we, I, I talk about this narrative that I think is very dangerous. Do you think education can be saved or do you think it's, it's gone? Well, I think there are a lot of people that are waking up. Uh, a lot of things have happened under their very noses. They didn't understand that many of these school boards have taken over the, their, their teaching of their kids. And some of the things that they teach these kids, you know, I mean, it's, it's shameful. It's just shameful taking a seven-year-old kid and allowing a seven-year-old kid to determine whether or not he wants to change his sex. Well, he didn't have the brains to do that. I mean, think about when you were seven years old, did you have, a ch did you have enough brains to make a decision like that? Uh, and it's irreversible once you do it in many cases. And these school boards are, are, are actually supporting that and paying for it and not allowing the parents to be involved with the decision-making. But there are a lot of people waking up to it and understanding that this is not what they want, and they're knocking these school boards out all over the country. They're fighting their organizations, like Mom for Justice, uh, an organization that came out of two women in Florida that are fighting this and now have something like 100,000 parents that are that part of it. And they're fighting school boards every time they have a chance and knocking these people out of power. These people came into power because it's, a, it's, at, it's an overall plan that they have for taking over this country and turning it into a socialist country. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to do that when, when free enterprise and capitalism has made this the greatest country in the world, both economically, democratically, uh, freedom, and, and they just... Uh, they don't, they don't learn lessons. They watch, you know, you take people, I have friends of mine who live in Canada. They have social, socialized medicine. It's crap. It's the worst. When I speak to my friends up there, the, the ones who are successful, they talk about socialized medicine, the greatest thing in the world. And then when they get sick, guess what they do, Mike? They're right back in the United States getting taken care of. They don't no stay up there. They don't stay there. They come to the States and they get taken care of because they have the money for it. But the hell, the hell, you know, we don't care about the rest of the people. Socialized medicine doesn't work. Socialized anything doesn't work. It takes away the incentive of people to work. And, and all, all people are not created equal. We aren't. Some are better than others. Some work harder than others. Some have more um, strength of character. And those are the guys that, that rose and became the successful ones. Uh, in today's society, uh, that's, that's looked at as negative. Uh, 
they, they try to paint the picture that people, myself, were all evil, that we, we got there by working on the backs of other people that broke their backs. Listen, we have 500,000 people working at Home Depot today. I love every one of them. They're the hardest working people. They really give a damn. They care about customers. They care about their jobs. They care about their careers and their families. And they work hard every day. And and I'd like to say it's 100%, but I would say it's absolutely the, the vast majority. And the success of Home Depot, even today, after all these years, is very prominent. You go in our stores, you see people who have been here 25 years, 30 years. I, I gave a speech to somebody who had a 40 years. They were there 40 years when I was there and started. They started with me when I started. And they're still there. They love their jobs. And they love working every day. And they love working with people. And that is the American dream. They've, they've, they've made enough money. They own stock in the company. We made it available that each one of them had stock in the company. And they feel like they're working for themselves. They paid off their houses. They paid off their mortgages. They took care of their families. And, you know, now they're capitalists in this small way. And they love this country. And they love this. They love the, 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 their fellow workers. And uh, they don't want to change. They don't want socialism. They, they want to have their own medical plans. They want to be able to divide, decide their own futures. And they don't want anybody telling them, this is good for you. And we'll make your decisions for you. They like to make their own decisions. They're real Americans. I think there's two fundamental opposing beliefs that, and again, it goes back to socialism, uh, that government is the solution to, to, uh, to all problems. But uh, Bernie, I, I'm with you. You know, one, it was it Ronald Reagan said, what are the, the nine most dangerous words in the English language? I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Um, the private sector and capitalism will always move more effectively, efficiently than the government will. And having served 20 years in the military and seeing that, that stands to be true. And I think there is more philanthropic nature when you allow the private sector to attack public problems. Well, that, I, I think you're a living example of that. Yeah, let's give an example. I'll give you an example. Uh, about five years ago, we became aware of the fact that veterans were committing suicide at a very high rate anywhere from 20 to 30 a day. Imagine that, <clears throat> 20 to 30 every single day, seven days a week, we lose 20 to 30, it's still going on. And most of it was because of traumatic brain injury where they've been involved with IEDs uh, and they're not able to function. So they came back, uh, the VA is not able to help them, they're not equipped for it, they can't keep jobs. They can't keep their families and they become part of the homeless. Eventually, eventually they break their families up and they, they end up homeless and they end up being a ward of the state. 
we, we discovered that there's a way to treat them. Traumatic brain injury, which there's no way right now. By the way, if you have a concussion, Mike, today, get into automobile accident, you have nowhere to go. There is no treatment for traumatic brain injury, which is a concussion. And we came up with a process and a protocol that works. And we're slowly but surely uh, started something called the Avalon Action Network. And Avalon Action Network is those places, and there are. Right now, we have Tulane. We have uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Jefferson, uh, Operation Share uh, that comes out of uh, uh, Atlanta. Uh, we have... Um, there's, there's actually eight or nine. We just had a new one come aboard in, in Wisconsin uh, last week. Uh, and my goal, and by the way, the protocol is so good that we can show the data, the actual data that people that are treated here, that 85 to 95% are able to go back and start living their life again. These are people that are on the street that, that weren't non-functioning, that now can do it. In addition to that, we have something called Boulder Crest, which is a shorter program, which is a, a kit, like a camp for seven or eight days. And that's for post-traumatic stress. And by the way, it's a very big deal today not only for the ex-military, but for first responders, policemen. Yes. You know, uh, I spoke to a policeman the other day. He was involved with a, uh, uh, there was a shooting and, <coughs> and the guy died <coughs> in his arms. And he said that affected him from that day on. And he needed something like Boulder Crest and we have these, please, we're taking care of about 2,000 a year now. Uh, we think that eventually we're going to be able to take care of 20,000 people. That's my goal, building hospitals all over the United States. Arthur Blank is my partner in this, so we're partners again. And uh, we're very much committed to, we have a fine group of people, wonderful board of directors, and we're really going to make it happen. And every doctor in America understands there is no treatment for traumatic brain injury. You know, you see this uh, young quarterback for uh, Florida for the university, uh, not the university, but the, uh, the, uh, uh, the football team in Florida and tag you. Yeah. And he's got, he's got a concussion and he has traumatic brain injury and they're not treating him. Uh, we're trying to get him into one of our hospitals because we think we can treat him and, and, get, and get him along in life and, and let him live a life again. I don't know if he'll ever play football again, but certainly he should be able to live a life again. He's a vibrant young man and he deserves better than what he's getting. But I don't care what it is. Harvard, you know, 
It could be the finest organization in America today. We speak to the neurologist. I'll give you an example. I spoke to a neurologist at, in Houston at one of the great facilities of all time. And I said to him, if I have a, a, a concussion and I come in here, how do you treat me? And he basically looked at me with blank face and said, we really don't have a treatment. You know, we send you to a psychiatrist. They give you some drugs to calm you down, but that doesn't do it. It doesn't help the ringing in the ears. It doesn't help the dizziness. It doesn't have the headaches. It doesn't ha help the fact that they can't sleep. It doesn't happen the fact that they can't function, that light hurts them and noise hurts them. And just it's, it's just a nightmare for them. So we have this treatment and we're working at it. Now, government can't do it. For Christ's sakes, the VA has not been able to handle it. You know, when you Bernie, have... Bernie, don't, don't get me started on the VA. Well, when you I, have... 20, as being somebody who's, who's inside the, 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 the system, again, it, I have no doubt that the VA is filled with good people that, that do care about what they're doing. But when the system hamstrings innovation and stepping outside the lines to get things done, the, again, I, I'm a proponent, and this is coming from a retiree who's 100% disabled, total and permanent, is get rid of the VA or, or minimize them down to educational benefits and privatize the medicine to get uh, best treatment. Bottom line. But again, it is big government who will not cut that, 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 that head off uh, and probably save billions in the process uh, because it would, it would, they would lose so many jobs uh, that the VA currently employs. Well, because it's a, it's a social network and it's, it's all political. You figure out how many people are working there. Well, they're voters. That's the key. Keep them in their jobs. Half of these people are not qualified to work anywhere. And, uh, but, they, but they're not solving the problem. So when 20 or 30 people are committing suicide every day, that's a failure. If I had a business that was losing X number of dollars a year, I would go bankrupt. The VA doesn't go bankrupt. They keep giving him more money. But but that's a perfect example of socialism. It doesn't work when the government operates it because the government doesn't know how to do anything, anything to get the right kind of answer. Listen, years ago, I paid for, I paid for um, the, uh, after the 9-11, uh, the head of the CDC came to me and said that they had no emergency network that, in fact, uh, they set up a uh, an auditorium and they put tables in and they tried to operate from that. Uh, we built, he, he asked us to help him. We volunteered. We helped build and we said if it doesn't have to go before Congress and we don't follow rules, government rules, we'll build you an emergency center, which we did, the Marcus Emergency Center, which we built in something like seven months. And we got people from all over to donate, you know, materials and computers. And in other words, government couldn't do it. If the government started to do it, it would take eight years and cost $8 billion.
we did it for something like three and a half million dollars. And we did it in a short period of time. And today it's very functional. In everything that they, you have today, you had this coronavirus, the CDC was operating and had, had the ability to, to communicate with the rest of the world because government didn't do it, we did it. And so, you know, my belief is that, and I think this kid, this book that I wrote, which is Kick Up Some Dust, which I think, you know, that, that's, that's what we're trying to sell today is the book that there are many people out there like me. A lot of people don't know how to give money. A lot of people have made a lot of money and don't know what to do with it. And we're trying to get them involved in giving back to society and putting their brains behind it, not just writing a check. In other words, just don't write a check. And for Christ's sake, don't give it to a university, whatever you do. Don't give any money to a university. That's like taking it and throwing it in the toilet, as far as I'm concerned. Hey, Bernie, did you see recently that there was a uh, audit on the DOD and they couldn't account for $600 million? Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. If you were the CEO of that company, would you fire well, the Secretary of the Defense on, on, on the spot? You would fire another Secretary of Defense. You would go back and fire the President. You know, everybody, because they're all involved. They're all part of the hands in the cookie jar. And one party is not better than the other party, except you oh, know, no. No. They're, they're all bad. They're all bad. Once And once they get involved, they are a disaster. I think of all the things I've done in my life that have the government could not do. I built an aquarium in Atlanta, the world's yes, biggest love aquarium. It. It's, 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 it's a place you have to go. I will tell you, Mike, you've never been there. You got to go. And if you have kids, <clears throat> they would love it, but you're going to love it yourself. It's a full day. It's the biggest in the world. It's got more things than you can imagine. And it, the government couldn't have done that. They, they couldn't have done that. And we, we did it in 27 months. We opened it up. It would have taken the government 10 years and cost 50 times what we spent. Yeah. And they still nice wouldn't have the same product. But the same thing with every hospital we get involved with, the Marcus Stroke Center at Grady Hospital, the Marcus Emergency Room at Grady Hospital, uh, Piedmont Hospital, uh, their cardiac vascular center. Government can't do that. And so we're trying to convince this book, Kick Out of Some Dust, is a, is a book trying to convince people who have money, who are not spending it. You know, they go out and they buy a big boat, you know, a, a yacht, or they buy houses, you know, in 10 different countries around the world, but they don't help anybody. And they really want to. And so we have instructions here on how to do it. On And, and also, you know, I got involved with, with charity when I was broke. I didn't have money. I joined the City of Hope and I worked at the City of Hope and couldn't give them much money, 
but I gave my time and effort. So entrepreneurs out there who have built businesses can have a lot to do with helping people. And this book will tell you a lot about how to do that. By the way, <clears throat> you mentioned that a lot of entrepreneurs want to learn how to do things. I could tell you this book is a, is a book of my life and it talks about how to deal with adversity. And I think that one of the biggest things, Mike, that happens is that everybody in running a business runs across something that almost knocks them out. And it's how you react, how you, how you manage to survive. Because everybody I know, you asked me a question before, and I could tell you that most of the successful people that I admire in my life have had a moment where they came very close to losing it. I mean, I mean, losing everything. And, and, and Bernie, you said when you got fired as CEO, of the, was it the Handy Dan chain? Oh, that yeah. was one of the lowest points of your life. Oh, listen, at that point, I could have spent the rest of my life blaming Sandy Sigalow for being the rat that he was, but that wouldn't have helped me, would it? And, and how old were you when you, when you got laid off as CEO? I, I was 49. And you started back over, basically. I started back over. It wasn't easy, by the way. had a lot of help. Ken Langone was very helpful. Uh, he, he, he supported me. He knew you know, my talents. He knew what I knew, and he, he, he believed in my dream. Uh, you know, uh, Arthur Blank, who was terrific, that worked for me at Handy Dan, also was fired. But he became a great partner, and we learned from each other from that experience. And we, we turned it around, and we didn't relive that life. Now, eventually, I can tell you that we put Siegeloff out of business, the guy who fired me. Yep. We eventually put him <laughs> out of business. But that wasn't that, – that, that had to feel pretty good a little bit. That, that was like, you know, we're going to – that was a side, a side benefit of being able to do that. But, you know, getting over these, these traumatic things, you know, at Home Depot, we had a point where we almost went broke. We bought a chain of stores. It was a bad decision. And we didn't really do our homework. And we were very young. And it came close to taking this very successful shooting star and just bringing it down. And we just dealt with it. And we learned one thing. When you make a mistake, recognize the mistake, fix it, and don't do it again. By the way, let, that's the theory. Let, let, let me ask you this. Have you ever heard of a business case example where today's highly successful companies didn't have that crossing the Rubicon sort of moment where there was no point of return they're close to bank. I mean, oh yeah, there's oh, yeah. risk in every venture, but I've never heard of just smooth sailing for any organization. Is, no. is that just a, a fable? No. You know, you look at AMP that disappeared off the face of the earth. Kmart, mm -hmm. Sears Roebuck, uh, companies that I know, um, because they had what they did. They made a mistake. 
and erratic fixing the mistake. They covered their asses. The key was no one gets the, the blame for it. And we teach our people at Home Depot, our associates, if you make a mistake, recognize it, fix it, and move on. And don't do it again. That's all we say. If you make a mistake and it's an honest mistake, don't cover your ass. The military, have you ever heard a politician admit that he made a mistake? You'll never hear that because they don't ever make mistakes. And because they don't admit it and they don't fix it, they continue doing the same stupid things over again. And when you start covering up, the cover up becomes more difficult than the, the thing itself. Fixing why, why would they stop doing it, Bernie? When, when it, it's almost the voters incentivize the behavior by reelecting them. So it's almost become a, a culture. It's a culture of lying and cover-ups. Because they, they feel that it shows a weakness, but it doesn't show a weakness. It shows a strength. And I think people will appreciate it. If a politician got up and said, I shouldn't have done this. This was a mistake. I think that people would have more confidence in him or her than they had before. But they don't do that. They just keep covering their ass and looking for somebody to blame. There's always somebody to blame. It's not you. When in fact, it's you. Uh, you know, we talk about, you know, the VA, all of Congress. You know, when the minute they hear about, you know, they hear about 20 to 30 people at VA being killed, the first thing they do is what? Give them more money. Yeah, does it make sense? Doesn't make sense. So, uh, look, and in businesses, in business, when you run a business and you operate and you don't, you have to understand something. I'll give you an example. Somebody came to me recently and said, when you re relive your life, when you wrote the book, do you realize how many mistakes you made? And I, and I thought about it in a second. I said, no, I, I just never think about it. Uh, I, I guess I made a ton of mistakes, uh, but you know, I tried to fix them and I moved on. And they said, well, do you remember a real big mistake you made? Well, I, yeah, I made a lot. I, there were a lot. I mean, every day, you know, we had, you know, decisions, maybe a hundred decisions a day. And I can't say they're all brilliant decisions and uh, that we did the right thing on each one. I can't say that. But I can tell you this. When we recognized it was a mistake, we just fixed it. And that was it. Didn't blame anybody, just moved on. And that's the key. And that's what happened to me at Handy, at Handy Dan. I had a dear friend of mine, Sal Price, who taught me that lesson one night. I was suing them and they owed me a lot of money for my contract and everything else. And he said, he said, you're gonna spend the rest of your life in litigation. And if I were you, he said, you're a good merchant. You know what you're doing. Why don't you move on with your life? And I remember driving back from San Diego that night to LA. And I thought about it. 
And I said, Saul Price was right. And the next day I fired my attorneys and I moved on with my life. And look what came out of it, Home Depot. So it was a a win-win. And for all these people, uh, and if you look at what Home Depot has done for the economy, uh, we have, I don't know, millions of people have worked at Home Depot, millions. I run across them everywhere I go. I go into a restaurant, somebody buys me a meal and they say, I don't work for you anymore, but I used to work for you. And if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have started my own business. And it's a very successful business. I like to buy you a dinner. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a great feeling to know that you've done this for the economy. When we, when Home Depot started, all these companies were small companies. Uh, I could tell you almost every company we did business with was a small company that we built. They grew with us. They built factories. When we were, I remember going to the first show I went to and I asked the paint manufacturer and I said, how's business? He said, great. And I said, well, we'd like you to sell to us. And he said, sure. And I said, you know, we want to have a delivery every week because we expect to sell. He said, no, it's seven months. We're doing great. We have a seven month backlog. I said, seven months, are you out of your mind? And that company now delivers overnight. We taught that company how to do business and they grew with us and they became a multi-zillionaire company. And and the, the owners became zillionaires also and are in the same boat that I'm in. And, <laughs> and you know, <laughs> that's how, how success works. You know, Saul was a very smart man. Um, and, and I read that quote about when he said, you guys are smart, you've got this, walk away. Uh, easier said than done. Um, somebody comes at you, I think that's just human instinct that I'm going to come for your eye. You took my eye, eye for an eye. Um, but I, I do want to move to the book, kick up some dust. Uh, you know, so, and, and Bernie, I, I would have you back on for five podcasts uh, teaching us young young bucks how to, uh, to, to live life the way you have. So your ability to give back, which you, you, you brought up the Jewish concept of uh, tzedakah, if, if, if I'm saying that right. Uh, but I love this. It's the key, you said this in the book. The key is not just writing a check, but writing a check, following the check, making sure that it's being used properly and using entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial skills that you've had all your life. So you've given back. Uh, and in fact, I think it, it was at one of your birthday parties, you, you raised $117 million for some of your favorite uh, nonprofits. It's in your blood. And even your mom gave back when she, she had very little to, uh, to give. But uh, you also believe in accountability for, for writing those checks. You know, I, I know in business, they call it dumb money or smart money. Uh, it sounds like accountability is one of the sort of attributes you hold dear and if you're going to write a check, you're going to make sure that the people are, are, are keeping their word on that. Well, if you built the business and you're not, and you're a very successful businessman, why would you just write a check? Why would you just follow the check and help that company or that charity get better? And I find that when they do, 
they help it. They put their entrepreneurship back into the charity because charities are really lacking leadership in that in that, that vein. You know, a, a lot of charities just collect a lot of money and don't do much with it. And they piss away a lot of money. And you look at the overhead, you take a lot of these charities. By the way, a very good friend of mine today is doing an audit on all the charities for, for military. And he said, you'll be shocked. He says hundreds of millions of dollars a year are being collected for the military. And the overheads are 40, 50, 60%, which means most of the money doesn't go where it should be going. There's some good ones out there. Gary Sinise is one. Uh, the other one is, uh, uh, yeah, Fold of Honor, by the way, is a really good one. 90, 91 cents on the dollar. Yeah. 91 cents on the dollar go, go to educational uh, scholarships. Yeah. That's why I'm yeah. wearing, wearing this shirt. Sorry, cut Tower you off. The Tower is another yes. one that's very, Love very it. good. I can't, I can't vow for any, any others. I can tell you that the Avalon Fund is going to have a very small percentage of overhead because we know we're going to be more effective. I mean, right now, our overhead is, I don't know, let's say 10%. And we're taking care of 2,000 2, veterans a year. That's a lot yes. with, that, with that kind of overhead. Uh, so business people have to get involved and your expertise in how to run a business and how not to run a business is very critical, very important. And and we teach you some of these things in the book. I think there are a lot of lessons in the book on just how to conduct yourself in life, how to handle difficult situations that happen. And I do it by telling the stories of my own life. And not to say I'm a genius, I'm not a genius, but I happen to be smart enough to uh, be, be successful. And maybe I always made more right decisions than I made wrong decisions, but they came out right and more people were helped before because of it. I know that we're very much involved with so many things today, uh, the autism world. Mm -hmm. uh, we now have a device that can de determine autism at the age of two to three months. Think yes. about that. If we can get them at two to three months, we could change their life. And how many millions of kids are gonna be helped by that? It's, that's amazing. We have a blood test that through Johns Hopkins that we're now supporting research on that's in front of the FDA, where a simple blood test can tell you about certain cancers in first mm -hmm. stage, like pancreatic cancer, mm -hmm. ovarian cancer, which right now doesn't show up at first stage. Typically it shows up in fourth stage and it's too late to save your life. So we're talking about saving people. And look, I'm a businessman, I'm not a doctor. And yet I'm involved with all of these things because you know we get the right people, we have the right expertise, uh, we give them the skills that they, they lack they may be geniuses when it comes to medical research, but in running a business, they're not geniuses. 
And so we give them that background and, you know, we come out with a winning formula. Yeah. And Avalon, I could tell you, is a winning is a winning formula. By the way, this Avalon network that we're talking about may be the biggest thing I've ever done in my life. It is, uh, you think about the concussions that people are having all over the country, football players, hockey players, soccer players, they have nowhere to go. This one will, tell, will help them. And of course, the veterans, which are the ones that we care about, we have to figure out how to do it so that the civilians pay for it. In other words, the hockey players, the schools, or the teams pay for it, and therefore we're able to give services to the military people at no cost. You will hear no complaint from me uh, on that one. Uh, we're, we're working with veterans in a different way on the emotional, spiritual side to, to give them the gift of flight, as we say, to teach them how to uh, paraglide and, uh, and skydive. Uh, I just went on uh, something called the 777 Expedition with uh, nine of my brothers in arms. And uh, we skydived into all seven continents in seven days and set three world records. But I'll tell you what, uh, it just gave me a taste of what I had before the brotherhood, the esprit de corps, the, the homecoming and belonging. Um, it, you know, it is a holistic approach to helping these vets and athletes get back to some, some normalcy or some semblance of, uh, of normalcy. And for that, I can't thank you enough. Bernie, uh, I want to close this out. And again, you are welcome to come back on uh, because one, I, I assume, you know, with the remainder of your life, and I know you, you've got years to come. What's, what, what's your primary goals? Did you, I, I know you signed the giving pledge. You've given away so much money. I know you've got a problem with greed. W what over the next decade do you want to achieve? Well, I would like to help uh, other people. First of all, I would like to, I'd like to get a lot of people. If this book is successful by having people join in the game, of, of giving back. And I don't care whether you have money or don't have money. If you don't have money today, you will tomorrow. And if you conduct your life right, you'll be successful. And then if you learn that you have to give back, uh, I'll be successful. If we can convince some people who have a lot of money to get into the game and not spend it frivolously, but give it selectively in right places and follow the money and help those organizations thrive, then I'll feel that we've done something successful. As far as ourselves, we hope that Home Depot continues to be successful because everything that we have is tied up at Home Depot. And as Home Depot is successful, we become successful. The more they make, the more they, they do, uh, the more money I end up with and the more money we're going to give away. Oh, in our case, we're not giving away 50%. We're giving away 90%. Well, when my, my wife and I die, we're both going to leave it. 90% is going into our charities. So uh, that's Amazing. those are my short-term goals. Meanwhile, I'm 93. I'm working every day on some other project and trying to make these projects better. And adding not only my money, 
but my skill sets yes. and, and my, uh, you know, all Wisdom. the things I learned in this book, uh, I, I try to pass on and uh, I think it's successful and I keep, listen, I, I hope I live a long life, more people. I'm 93. I'd like to be able to be functioning the way I am when I'm 100 years old. I hope my brain still operates because that's the key. The body, you know, doesn't easy, doesn't keep up with the brain uh, because the body keeps deteriorating as you get older. But as long as my brain stays strong, I'm going to keep doing all the things I do and try to do them in spades and try to teach people along the way. If I teach, you know, 10 people with this book, who are who do the things that I'm doing, this book will be successful. Then my life will be successful. That's why I wrote the book. We we will spread kick up some dust to the winds and and, and we will cover that uh, at length in uh, in Men's Journal with a, a very good article as we will this uh, this podcast. But Bernie, we usually ask people, uh, you know, the way we close out our podcast is a few standard questions. First one is. And I know this is this is so hard. It may not be that hard for you. If you had to choose three tenets, three keys to success in your life that you would pass to me and my generation, what would those three rules be that have led to the majority of your success, either impact or fulfillment? Number one rule is that everybody is born with common sense. Use it. Use your common sense. Number two, work hard and don't stop. And number three would be recognize mistakes and fix them. Listen carefully. Don't keep shooting your mouth off. You know, I keep saying when the mouth is going, when the mouth is going, the ears stop working. So use your ears and learn and listen and and act, you know, intelligently and use your common sense. I mean, people don't understand. And we're born and we're so lucky that we do have common sense. And there are people who go through life and don't touch that. They don't ever use their common sense. They make all the wrong decisions. And uh, my mother taught me that to, if you're going to... If you strengthen any part of your area, do it in the common sense area. So all history goes into it and all the experiences go into it. And then when you have to make a decision, it's based on experiences. That's, uh, that's, that's impactful. And it sounds like common sense in your, your views tied to critical thinking as well, uh, which seems to be at a deficit uh, these, uh, these days, especially for them. Some of the narratives we, uh, we discussed. Hey, Bernie, last question. And, and I can't thank you enough for your time. Um, when all is said and done, what is it that you want your legacy to be? Uh, you know, you only live on this earth a very short period of time. It's a blip. I would like my life to be better than a blip. I'd like people to remember me as having done some good things and not just fade into history as nothing. Uh, so, you know, 
Yeah, when you're gone 10, 20 years, people look back and say, oh, there was a guy that he really did things. He really helped people. And uh, more than that, you can't ask him. Well, Bernie, I don't think you're going to have that problem having created one, an amazing company that fueled the economy, even fueled independent contractors and created a whole uh, stronger industry line for America, a, a brand that is as recognizable as Nike or Coke. And I know that your foundation will live on well beyond you and impact lives. So, uh, sir, I, I don't think you'll have that problem. Um, I can't thank you enough. Uh, this has been, you know, uh, my, my manager, George Silva, could could sense the excitement in having you on once I heard uh, that, he, you know, he had connected with your people. So uh, for everyone listening, go pick up this book by Bernie Marcus, kick up some dust. Uh, like you said, you'll learn life lessons. You'll learn about the uh, the power of giving and impacting lives. I will read it. The only thing I'm going to hold you to, Bernie, is I want a signed copy. So I will find a way. I will hunt you down. I've got a uh, track record for doing that. Make sure I get your... Uh, your signature. If there's anything we can ever do for you, uh, please don't hesitate to ask. And to all the listeners, uh, I hope you gained some valuable lessons from a man who's, who's, who's a man of his word and proven his worth. Uh, again, thank you for joining the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior podcast. And until next time, this is Mike Sorelli and Bernie Makoff. Marcus, Thanks, Mike. go ahead, Bernie. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye.